Jeremy Allaire, and this is The Money Movement, a show where we explore the issues and ideas with this brave new world of digital currency and blockchains. Uh, this week, we are going to continue uh, on this theme of digital dollars. And, uh, you know, this is a theme we've been exploring now for months. Um, and as you're going to hear today, we're, we're going to talk about crypto dollars, not digital dollars. And we'll talk about what the difference is and, and the meaning behind that. But um, obviously last week and, and in earlier uh, episodes, um, we've talked about stable coins extensively. We've talked about future central bank digital currency models, hybrid central bank digital currency models. We've explored the role of the private sector uh, versus uh, you know, governments, uh, operating and, and administering some of this themselves. What, what is that balance and set of trade-offs? Um, but this week, uh, we're going to turn our attention uh, to another lens on this, uh, what Castle Island uh, Ventures co-founders Nick Carter and Matthew Walsh dub crypto dollars. So over the past few years, I've gotten to know Nick and Matt a bit, and early this year, sat down with them for a bit of a deep dive on the whole stablecoin space and, and was really intrigued with the conversation and the thoughtfulness that, that they had about this problem space. And then later this year, Nick and Matt penned a fantastic piece, which was published in July, which is linked in the show description, dubbed Crypto Dollars, The Story So Far, which I think better than most analysis really dove into the very profound and long-term implications of this innovation on society uh, and in general, kind of the birth or perhaps rebirth of a free banking era. Um, really, really fascinating discussion. So I'm actually very thrilled to have Nick and Matt on the show. Um, welcome, guys. Thanks for having us, Jeremy. Excited to be here. Yeah, excellent. Hey, Matt. Hey, Jeremy. Great to see you. Thanks for having us on. Yeah, absolutely. You got a great mic there, Nick. Thank you. It's just you do so many of these and you have to make sure you have, uh, you know, quality equipment as well. Yeah, no, I know. Um, awesome. Well, I'm, I'm super, super excited about this conversation. Um, so maybe um, maybe just kind of kicking off. Um, you have this I think you have a high level thesis and, and, and in in, uh, in in the work that you guys have put out and, and obviously in listening to a lot of other conversations that you're having as well uh, on your own podcast and, and out in the world. Um, you talk about crypto dollars and you talk about crypto dollars as being very distinct from digital dollars. Uh, I think there's a lot of different conceptions, misconceptions, stable coins, digital dollars, central bank digital currency and crypto dollars. Um, my feeling, of course, is that you have a very specific meaning um, when you talk about crypto dollars. And so, you know, maybe just first, you know, what's the high level thesis um, that you have around, uh, around this idea of crypto dollars? Well, I guess I can kick it off there. I mean, our, our view on the phenomenon is really that it's the most impactful thing happening in the crypto industry uh, in 2020. And it is you know, building on the shoulders of giants. I don't think crypto dollars would exist if Bitcoin didn't exist, for instance, or if crypto exchanges weren't so ubiquitous or you know, wallet technology hadn't reached the level that it reached. 
But in some ways, this feels a little bit like the apotheosis of the crypto phenomenon. And that doesn't really, that's not to discredit Bitcoin or any of the commodity like cryptocurrencies, but it's just pointing out that crypto users seem to have a revealed preference for using crypto dollars, just empirically looking at the data, looking at the transactional activity. So our view on this is that it's satisfying uh, a really important demand uh, that you know, has existed for a long time and it's now possible to meet those uh, mm-hmm. expectations, which is effectively unencumbered commerce, you know, more mm-hmm. global, more natively seamless commerce. Um, and I think the key differentiator for crypto dollars is that they are, as yeah, I think encumbrance is the key, um, is that they, they give you more transactional freedom, more transactional mm-hmm. autonomy. Um, and then there's some you know, other really nice qualities like settlement quality and things like that. But at the core of it, um, in our view, is that they combine you know, the, the high quality settlement assurances that you get from cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin with the low volatility characteristics of fiat. And so it's a pretty happy marriage so far. Yeah, totally. I mean, I, I, um, I think when I first started using Bitcoin, um, and 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 playing around with public chains in 2012, uh, like you know, you, you, if you're a crypto user, you have you have these aha moments of like, oh my god, this is this permissionless settlement. This is this this is software. This is you know, uh, you know all the security dimensions to it, and all these other things. Um, and it and it changes forever. I think your your experience of money. Um, and it, and it is, it is, it's just this different level of, of, of freedom and, uh, and, and, and use and utility and, and other, and sort of if you, it's this marriage of the internet and money and, um, and software. And, um, so that, that like, I think is, 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 you know, in, in some ways, like if you, if you already, um, deeply understand the inherent benefits of cryptocurrency of, of the, you know, digital currency like that, yeah, of course, if you're going to have a, a dollar version of that, that's even that's awesome too, right? So uh, the, this sort of preference that emerged within the ecosystem to use that, um, uh, I, I certainly, uh, as you know, that that inspired a lot of the work behind Circle. Um, but um, I think, um, you know, there are so, you know, coming back to maybe where, where I, I started too, which was there are all these different definitions, concepts. If you talk to a lot of people they couldn't really differentiate them um, that well. Obviously, you guys are incredibly deep um, in the space, but um, may- maybe talk a little bit about uh, that segmentation a little bit, right? Um, Matt, I don't know if you want to take this. You, you know, there's there's sort yeah. of different concepts and definitions, and I think because we really want to focus today on crypto dollars, like maybe we can say what's not a crypto dollar. <laughs> Yeah, definitely. Well, maybe I'll just opine a little bit about what you were just talking about in terms of the how we got here first, and then Nick can talk a little bit about how we think about the segmentation. But I was thinking back last night, getting ready to do this around the first time that I met you at Fidelity, and sort of the original idea behind Circle, and how in a lot of ways right now what's happening in the industry is exactly what you sort of predicted would happen. I think the implementation details have shifted now. Totally. So, you know, if you think about those early days, we thought we would be doing a lot of this on Bitcoin, 
and there was a big push around colored coins and the open assets protocol and would this be a proper conduit to actually get some of these crypto dollars into practice yeah and then you know i guess we all know what happened there and we end up with the erc20 standard end up pushing this along um so the way that we're sort of looking at the space now is that there's there's various different trade-offs in implementation details um around how you, you access this market. Uh, Nick, do you want to talk a little bit maybe about the kind of the framework and how we segment the market? Yeah, I, so, I mean, you asked earlier about, you know, what's the difference between a digital dollar and a crypto dollar? And I think that gets the core of it really. Um, you know, digital dollar always confused me a little bit because it seemed a little bit redundant to be honest, because most dollars are liabilities of the commercial bank system and they exist in digital format. In fact, the overwhelming majority of all of the instruments that we call refer to as dollars are totally digital. Um, and you know, I guess there's a couple trillion in physical there, cash. There are electronic records for them. Uh, right. Is, right. Is, is, yeah. Is, I mean, they're, they're not electronic bearer assets per se, but they exist in digital format, uh, solely in digital format. So I guess you can convert them into cash if you really wanted to. Um, you know, physical cash, but for the most part, they, they exist electronically, which is why we chafe a little bit at the, the digital dollar um, conception uh, or appellation. Um, and I know crypto isn't the most popular prefix uh, people kind of associate it with, uh, yeah. you know, insalubrious activity and so on. But right, right. to us, it, it's a more apt way to describe the phenomenon and, and, just, and carve it out relative yeah. to dollars that exist in the bank sector. And I think the key differences are that crypto dollars aspire to be digital bearer assets, mm -hmm. you know, something that if you know the private key, you are presumed to be the owner right. in the eyes of the blockchain. This and that's not, it's like, a, it is a native digital asset it is a native data type, as it were, like on the internet, right? It's, it's yeah. very, very and, differentiated, uh, you know, from what, again, the sort of legacy electronic money. And you can fully assign control with uh, by broadcasting some data online without the reliance of a third party. So that, to me, you know, that's what the cypherpunks wanted to create. They wanted to create digital cash. Yeah. If you go back and read the discussions, a lot of it's about dollar denominated or stable cash. Mm -hmm. It's not necessarily about volatile cash, which has all these additional assumptions about new monetary policies. Right. So I think that's part of the reason the cypherpunks, some of them rejected Bitcoin because Bitcoin by definition was going to be volatile. Not that that's a problem per se. It's just, that's not exactly what some of the cyberpunks are trying to create in yeah. the eighties and nineties. Uh, yeah. If you look at um, Digicash, you know, that was a, that was a stable instrument as well. So yeah. to me, the, the bearer asset nature is like the really, really key differentiating factor. I, I I, I see that too. Obviously, uh, I I, uh, I think that part of why people kind of go to digital dollar when referring to digital currency based versions of dollars, um, it, it's a you know you sort of watch this happen in in the internet space. You know, I, I remember um, you know uh, in digital media, for example, like you'd sort of say, hey, we're we're like we're actually doing you know digital digital media digital video or, or, you know, video on the internet or, or, you know, all these things. And yeah, the, the satellite companies were like, well, we do digital broadcast. Like our satellite network is digital and, and the cable companies were, no, we're doing digital video on demand. It's on our, ca our cable. It's entirely digital. I remember they'd market like it's digital television or, um, 
you know, digital, you know, satellite uh, radio became digital and it was like, it was using, I mean, it was basically saying like they're, they're using, uh, you know, they're using, uh, you know, software based protocols and, 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 uh, and package switch data or whatever the hell they're doing to, to deliver those things, but they're still like closed, walled off, controlled, intermediated. They're not public on the internet. They're not able to attach to permissionless networks. They're not something that anyone anywhere can participate in you know, with, with music and sound and text and communications, like the real distinction is when you are, you know, in my mind, like something that is natively digital is on public networks. It is on the permissionless internet. It is attached to open source software reference implementations. It's sort of, and, and, and so for me, um, you know, that's a, that's a huge difference. And I think a lot, in, in a lot of people's minds, um, digital currency does kind of represent that conceptual model is, is that, um, but I like crypto dollars too. So I, I, I <laughs> the other yeah. thing is Jeremy is it's programmable, right? And so that's something that none of these uh, quote unquote digital platforms that are not built on public blockchains right. can really ascribe to be. And so yeah. I think the surface area for the types of things that you can build on the internet just gets a lot larger. By virtue Absolutely. Of yeah. The, the mashing stuff up and the composability and the fact that it's actually built on, you know, open software that people can connect to and, and so on is just tremendous. It's really tremendous. Yeah. Well, yeah. We're, our view is that this is not a debate between analog and digital. It's we're, we've left the world of atoms behind. We've been yeah. in the world of bits for a long time. Yeah. It's who controls the network. Is it, uh, you know, is there one nexus of control or is it right. distributed? Yeah. So I, I, I guess, um, in, in your, um, in your paper, um, and, and, and the discussions that you've had, um, you know, what makes sort of crypto dollar special, there's a set of attributes that you've sort of defined to say, this is what makes, you know, this is what defines these, this is what makes them what they are, and, and presumably makes them really special. We touched a little bit on, on those, but you know, maybe we could enumerate some of that and, and talk about it. Yeah, so honestly, I don't think we've even fully understood what makes them special. There's probably more features that we're gonna discover but uh, the three that we lay out are um, the uh, permissionlessness, so the encumbrance uh, or the, the relative lack of encumbrance, the fact that they operate on open networks, um, and the auditability as well, which is pretty underrated in my opinion. Yeah. Um, obviously, I'm a little biased because we spend a, time look, a lot of time looking at on-chain data, which to me is still pretty magical compared with the amount of data we have about, you know, you look at the data from the Federal Reserve Bank of St. Louis, you know, there's some pretty interesting data there, but it's all kind of inferred and you can't really directly apprehend a lot of this information about the dollar. Yeah, and it, there's a delay and you can't account for all the dollars in circulation. I don't know if they could even, you know, determine how many dollars exist to the nearest billion, for instance. Uh, with crypto dollars, you can audit them to the last tenth of a penny you know so th that's a significant difference um we've already touched on the transactional freedom but i think that's really really key and i think it's a different model from say paypal where paypal is actively you know evaluating the risk of every single transfer that happens on the network um this se seems a little different to me um and then you have the fact that it's on an open network and any 
talented developer can just build a product, um, you know, effectively a smart contract um, and deploy it to the world and not even have a relationship with their end users. Um, and they can reference an existing contract, you know, that's the composability thing, which is pretty magical once you start to think about it. And it, it just means that the pace of development is so much faster than the banking sector, which seems pretty sclerotic to us these days. Yeah, Matt. I was going to say, I think there's, we're also just going to start to see a lot of competition on various axes of risk. And so there's, there are some really fundamental trade-offs between using different types of stable coins too. And so I think you're going to start to see differentiation based on the censorship resistant properties of these networks. You're going to start to see differentiation based on some of these platforms are a lot more likely to have institutional participation. I would definitely put USDC on that platform. So I think that the addressable market of just dollars that can participate on those networks would be a lot larger on networks like USDC versus the money something like- Count dollar money markets and imagine if more of that was on you know, digital currency. Right? Totally. Now the trade-offs versus using something like Tether where you know, we could argue whether or not you know, that platform is fully backed, but the, certainly there would be censorship resistant um, kind of trade-offs there uh, between this more centralized Project the interesting thing on that is um, you know, people talk about blacklisting and, and like, you know, uh, stable coins that have these uh, censorship <laughs> mechanisms built in. And I think it's, it, it's been publicly disclosed that um, Center Consortium has approved one blacklist. But it turns out there's dozens and dozens of them done by Tether. Sometimes we don't know why. We don't know who. Is it done for a friend who lost some money on an exchange? We don't really know. There's no transparency. Yeah. There's no policy, there's no accountability. So it's not censorship resistant at all. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think I looked yesterday and there are hundred addresses blacklisted on Tether so far. I, I mean, look, I, I think, I think um, it, 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 it just, it does underscore the fact that I think what you know, people perceive as maybe censorship resistant, maybe isn't. And I think the big question there in everyone's mind in the industry is what would happen in the event of an enforcement action and sort of what role would the parent company play and how, you know, how would they fight that? Uh, and then the last one is just, I think we're going to start to see a lot more experimentation around some of these algorithmically designed platforms. And the key risk there is just around whether or not they break and whether or not they can uh, hold yeah. a peg. And so it's fascinating just the innovation along all of those dimensions. And I think depending on the use case, you would gravitate as a developer towards one category versus the other. Yeah. On, on that topic of uh, blacklisting, one thing I've noticed recently is um, it's pretty arbitrary who can get access to kind of like the rollback feature kind of thing. Um, and you see people that lose money with Tether, maybe there's a bug. If they are loud enough on Twitter, they can get the attention of you know the team behind it and get that transaction nullified and you know not lose their dollars effectively. Um, but if you're you know a smaller fish, uh, you you have a lesser ability to kind of lobby, and yeah. so it's very vague and very unclear to me what the actual line of demarcation is or what the protocol is for having these you know, having Tether itself overruled the, the ledger of record, which is the blockchain, which is not a great situation, I would say, for users. Yeah, I mean, it's one, one of the reasons why Center Consortium publishes its blacklisting policy on the transparency page on center.io. And it's extremely clear that, um, I mean, basically, if 
the network is, is, is the fundamental security of the network is jeopardized, say, you know, admin keys, uh, privilege keys, things like that. Obviously, there, there, there would be a justification. But, but, but other than that, um, the language is, is very clear, which is a, a, a final binding court order from a competent U.S. jurisdiction um, presented uh, uh, to, to uh, Center Consortium's, um, you know, uh, uh, governing body. Um, that's pretty specific. Um, yeah. You know, someone who's loud on Twitter, is, that, doesn't, that doesn't meet that criteria. Um, and that's a quite a high standard to meet. It's a very high standard to meet. It's a very, very high standard to meet. And I think it has to do with, you know, how do you ensure that people can trust this as, as a, a reliable instrument. Um, and, um, and, and I think, um, you know, th there may be policies that emerge in the future that are outside of us that, that, that define other things that might need to be in place. But right now, um, you know, Center Consortium is a governance mechanism on this and, and it governs a lot of different things, but one of those is that policy and, um, and, and transparency is really key around that. So I guess the higher the barrier to climb is to um, asking for a blacklisting, the just generally higher quality of the settlement assurances are on the that's right. Itself. I think that's exactly right. Yeah, um, you know the the, the uh, another theme maybe just to touch on, and there's so many things we could like dive off on and stuff, which is fun. But um, um, the 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 subtitle is the story so far uh, in in your paper, uh, and. and um, I, I agree with you. Like this is, we're early in this story. I mean, most of the growth in this is literally in the last, you know, nine months. Uh, you know, obviously there's been experiments in this for five years, but like the story so far is we're really, really early. Um, maybe talk a little bit about the, you know, from your perspective, the why now, um, why is this happening so pervasively right now? Um, and uh, we'll go from there. I can hop in there first, maybe and Nick might have some different answers, but I think there's a few things that are really top of mind. One is that um, just the overall strength of the US dollar as sort of the, the unit of account and the uh, kind of the supreme uh, apex predator of money on the global stage uh, is really a big reason why there ought to be a lot of support behind things like crypto dollars, and US mm -hmm. dollar backed instruments. If you look at some of the, um, some of the movement coming out of China, and just what that would portend to do on the geopolitical scale if certain types of transactions on a global level of commodity sales, for instance, were to be denominated uh, not in US dollars. So I think there's a lot of attention being paid uh, from the higher ends of the US government uh, around that use case. Um, along those lines, kind of the story why now, you know, I think there was a, a big move to be made here by some of the larger payment providers in the United States. And so if you look at some of the the PayPal's, the Visa's, the Facebook's of the world that all have teams and really smart people mobilized around this. I think it's seen as a, a next frontier opportunity that can really expand access to financial services in ways that you really couldn't do before mm -hmm. this. And it can expand the aperture of what is possible when we get into some of these programmability issues. Really look at some of these technologies becoming foundational for the next generation of internet services being built on top of them. And I think the third thing that I would say in terms of the why now is that there are a lot of just forces from a capital markets perspective 
that make this a really interesting new market uh, to enter. So when you think about some of the opportunities just around the market structure here and the lending and the borrowing, you have a lot of firms that are moving in that are looking at this as a real uh, extension of things that they're already doing in the capital market space. And almost yeah. look at the, the infrastructure behind U.S. dollars is really hasn't been changed a lot in the last 50 years, right? I mean, we have, but we have big industries like there. The base layer, every other function in, in the capital markets is kind of built up on that. Right. And then, you know, we have these well-functioning repo markets and money markets. And I think in a lot of ways, this is the next generation of that. Mm -hmm. And we're just at the very early ages here. But that is all getting built. And so when you think about uh, stable coins and yield generation and, and some of these interesting things you can do, it's fairly obvious if you're a market participant what these, you know, the addressable market here is huge. And so it's, it's pretty clear that we're going to have some really large businesses built in some of these categories. And so I think that's another thing that's pushing this industry forward, this, this sector. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I can chime in on a couple more specific things. I mean, first of all, we're just seeing this secular move towards people understanding how to use digital bear assets for the first time. And before 2009, that was never a thing that anyone had to worry about pretty much. And the technology didn't exist uh, to, to facilitate that. And we had to start pretty much from scratch uh, in 2009. And so it took a decade or so until we had the tools suitable to transact with uh, value in the form of information. And that was a really difficult and challenging time. And a lot of people lost all their Bitcoins and so on, learning that lesson. And now the software stack has kind of progressed such that we can transact safely and not have to worry about it too much. And uh, you look at the data, I mean, you, the Cambridge study says there's about 100 million individuals worldwide that have ever used a cryptocurrency of some sort. Um, there, that's, I mean, there's obviously caveats to that estimate, but I consider it to be, to be fairly reliable. And five years ago, that figure was much, much less. So that number is just increasing, you know, that's to the general growth characteristic of the industry. Um, we've got a, a lot further to run, but that just means there's a much larger installed base of potential users for these things. Mm -hmm. Um, so that's, that's one reason why now I think is that there's just more people and more capital that's willing to allocate their assets to public blockchain based digital assets. Uh, the one catalyst that was very clear to us was after the shock, the risk off event in, in March 12th, um, some of the traders we talked to were firmly of the opinion that um, there were some crypto businesses that had had their capital denominated in dollars, but not in crypto dollars. And they were unable to move fast enough to, mm -hmm. you know, exploit that situation where Bitcoin wicked down to, you know, 3.5 K or something crazy. Right. And so then after that, they realized, okay, we need crypto native liquidity. Keep, keep, keep working capital on that. That's a trend we see. I mean, we see so many, uh, you know, blockchain native firms that are opening up accounts and her and who are, you know, their, their, their use cases are first party payments and working capital, not just trading. And um, I mean, it's obviously this is like early adopter to some degree there, but it's a cl clearly an interesting indicator is it, it reminds me of another uh, thought. I was just asked a question, you know, one of the things that's been interesting about, I mean, I'm just narrowing in on USDC for a moment. <clears throat> when you see USDC um, in circulation growing, um, you know, uh, it continues to grow even when the market goes down. It continues to grow when the market goes up. Uh, when there's low volatility, it continues to grow. 
And, and so in, in some ways people are saying is, is USDC uncorrelated or how, like what's the correlation, why is that? And I, um, that's something that we've noticed obviously as well. And th there's some really interesting things going on there which relates to your comments, which is, I think one was, um, you know, when, 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 uh, when the investment asset markets are, are rising, more capital is coming in through the market, right? So by definition, there's sort of more capital comes in, it goes, comes in through tokenization, it comes in through things like USDC. And then once it's in the market, there's holders of it and they prefer to hold it. Uh, it's, they, they, it, stays, it stays sticky because the people who've already decided they like crypto dollars, they wanna, they, when, they, when they're receiving those on the other end of the trade or they're holding them, they wanna hold them. So it, it generally yeah. stays sticky. But then when the market is selling off, um, people are selling into things like USDC and they wanna, they wanna get out of uh, whatever you know, coin or, or, or whatever that they're trading and they wanna get into USDC. And again, they're crypto native. And so they're sort of saying, well, I'm, I'm just gonna keep it in this. And then when I re-enter the market, uh, I'll be able to do that exactly to the example that you gave, Nick. And then the other is obviously the rise of DeFi and all of the protocols that are out there on the yield side and so when, when it is idle or when people are holding it, whether it's as working capital or, or uh, investment capital or, or what have you, they can put it in, in, in a yield protocol and like generate you know, daily yield with instant liquidity that they sure as hell aren't gonna get if they withdraw it out into native electronic you know, commercial bank money. And so that makes it even more sticky. And so there's a little bit of a flywheel going on that. And, and then I think the thing that we're paying attention to is um, at, at what point does that go from just like, uh, you know, kind of working capital management into, you know, the sort of deeper forms of, of, of payments and settlement and treasury and other activities that firms have where the advantages are so superior as well. And, and uh, obviously crypto native firms get that. But as when does that cross into, as you were saying at the very start, like this new form of commerce activity that becomes possible? One, one of the interesting things there is the OCC stance recently uh, around stablecoins, some of the clarity. And I know you've yeah. been doing a lot of work educating folks on that front. But to me, that just opens up the addressable market of deposits that are uh, that are allowed to do these type of activities. And yeah. it's not just the DeFi for the yield. I mean, you can use Genesis or BlockFi to generate totally. Yeah. much, much bigger yield than you would on a traditional money market. So yeah. uh, to me, that OCC thing is really worth you know, paying attention to. And we'll see. Absolutely. Well, that's a good segue. So um, rise of DeFi, everyone talks about it. There's a lot going on there. We could decompose that into lots of different things. But I think the interesting thing is, um, and I'd love to hear you guys talk more about it, is this idea that, you know, there's this, there's this programmability, there's this composability, some of the first protocols that are programming underlying instruments like stable coins are interest rate markets, uh, credit markets. And when you think about layering of the financial system, um, like this is a, a really profound market infrastructure that's being invented and created um, here. And, and may, maybe talk a little bit about that. Um, uh, you, know, you know, Matt, you obviously saw this from the Fidelity side of the house where I think probably Fidelity is probably one of the biggest money market operators in the world. Uh, and, um, but as you, as you think about, you know, digital dollars, crypto dollars, crypto dollar money markets, um, the growth of those, functioning of those, um, and that's, it's obviously very related to DeFi, uh, but how do you think about that? 
So the way that I think about it, when we generally you know, discuss it, is that there were really three foundational building blocks that had to be in place before we got to where we are now. One was around key management and custody. So how can you safely hold these things, either for yourself or on behalf of your customers? And so uh, that has been you know, built out pretty strongly over the past eight to nine years, where, to a point where you have large institutions participating, sovereign wealth funds, endowments, holding these type of assets. Mm -hmm. The second thing was around the liquidity landscape, just around the spot landscape, and how do you move uh, these assets around safely, so exchanges and OTC desks. And that's pretty well built out. Obviously, there's a long way to go, and the regulatory environment is catching up, and we're seeing a mixed shift between the types of institutions there. And then the third really foundational thing that you had to have in place was the just the data and the on-chain ability to uh, query these systems and know that they were provably fair and index construction and getting fair pricing and IOSCO compliant frameworks and things like that just around the price of these things. Um, and then that's for Bitcoin as well as any other uh, type of open crypto asset. But it's really on the foundation of the data, the exchange landscape, in the custody landscape that now you really start to see an unlocking in the capital markets uh, landscape. So if you think about repos and money markets, some of these things that do exist in traditional markets, um, we're, we're just building that again right now is my view uh, in the crypto mm -hmm. asset space. And so this is a really compelling category. And, and I think we're gonna start to see a lot more flows, just net flows moving into the system by virtue of this is already uh, being built on top of plumbing that was built for Bitcoin and other crypto yeah. assets already. And it's, it's institutional tested already. It's interesting. Nick, what, what, what are your thoughts on, um, you know, these, these uh, decentralized credit markets and interest rate markets? Yeah, I, I don't know. I'm kind of in the Jake Travinsky school of thought that true credit doesn't exist in DeFi yet. Um, but not that, you know, what's happening isn't interesting, but, you know, he wrote this great piece saying, um, you know, credit requires a notion of identity and, uh, you know, underwriting and analysis of a business or an individual's kind of cash flows and future earning prospects. So, um, I'm still, I'm still thinking carefully about whether I want to say um, that credit exists uh, in DeFi. I know there have been some small-scale experiments there. It certainly uh, exists in CeFi using crypto and stable coins and things like that. But absolutely, absolutely, yeah. yeah. Making the identity and reputation leap and, and untethering the asset from collateral, uh, which is unsecured lending, right? That's not exactly. Happening. Yeah, so that hasn't happened yet. I wouldn't say we have quote unquote maturity transformation. You don't have classic banking activities that occur in DeFi. That said, um, you have these amazing interest rate swap products and you have this uh, collateralized lending, which is you know like taking out a line, a line of credit against some equity that you hold yeah. uh, with, without sending it, which is a very common you know, tool in traditional markets which has now been democratized through DeFi, any asset that you hold that can, that can have a price in an on-chain context, the price doesn't even need to be from a exchange. It could be from one of these kind of swap facilities. Uh, you could take the price from there. Now you can borrow against that and have you know, automated uh, risk management. Uh, so those are some pretty interesting and those are, in my opinion, the interest rate swaps like, like compound and then borrowing against um, an asset that you hold, it might be a equity style, a pseudo equity mm -hmm. asset. Uh, that's, those are the two most interesting things to me. Uh, the numbers are still really small in the grand scheme. I mean, uh, 
you're talking about a, a billion-ish dollars of liquidity on compound. Um, right. I think the Forex markets are probably two, two orders of magnitude larger than that. Uh, so maybe more. Yeah. Uh, so <laughs> we still have a long way to go, but I think some of the exchanges see where this is going. They see that these markets are just turning to foreign exchange clearing houses. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the, the most we, we see uh, some of these decentralized exchanges specifically optimizing for trading stable coins. Mm -hmm. They optimize so that the liquidity providers, you know, can earn the return commensurate with the expectation that these assets are not necessarily that volatile relative to each other. So I think some of the utility tokens which powered this were true to the source of excitement. Some of those utility token theories are getting a little discredited mm -hmm. and we're seeing the growth of tokens which are equity-like, which is probably a bit more interesting in that it comes with more rights and yeah. then just you know, fiat currency uh, representations right. of fiat currency on chain. It's weird that it's all dollars. It's 97-ish plus yeah. percent dollars. Yeah, there's there's I, not a lot of other. <laughs> talk about that because obviously, again, you're, you talk about crypto dollars. Uh, you know, we talk about US dollar coin, uh, you know, et cetera. I think, um, uh, you know, from a geopolitical perspective, obviously like all, all these countries around the world aren't just going to roll over and say, actually, everyone in my country can just transact in dollars and that's all fine. Um, yeah, you know, some of them of, might, some of them might, some of them might. So th this is the question just from a geopolitical, geopolitical economic perspective. Um, you know, the, the question I sort of ask is, is this going to be like the rise of the internet in, in earlier stages where kind of the connectivity lit up and then all of a sudden people are like, Oh my God, I have global free communications and I can just do it directly through my, my computer and then my mobile device and I'm I'm now I'm not I'm no, I'm no longer bound by as it were like the rules of the regulated communication system in Italy or in uh, you know pick pick your country or like the the borderless nature it happens people opt in to a new a new information system a new communication system a new commerce system will this will that just that rise happen and people around the world just say the utility value is so high. Uh, I'm voting with my smartphone. I'm going to participate in this economic system, say the crypto dollar economy. And is it just going to be so powerful that it, that the, the governments actually, even if they try to stop it, that their citizenry will say, you know, screw you. Um, I, I mean, that sort of happened. And, and, there, and, and those fault lines uh, in, in areas like communications and censorship and other things have, have obviously gone different ways in different countries. And I'm, I'm very interested to hear both of your thoughts on the geopolitical and political economic implications of this over time, um, in particular. I think this will be very disruptive to the extent that there will be regimes that actually topple as a result of this technology, uh, much more so than any other technology we've seen over the past 20 years. Um, it will be a bumpy road. And I think that this technology, there's one kind of view here that this just is a, a border kind of on the fringe technology. And then there's another that becomes a lot more pervasive in some of these countries. But what's clear to me is that the dollar is definitely the apex predator of fiat currencies. And there's really an insatiable appetite for dollars internationally. And so you see this reflected, you look no further than just the yield that you can get on some of these centralized platforms to reflect some of that demand there. Yeah. And there's other studies that you can look at some of just the on the ground um, 
Craigslist style uh, transactions that are happening where individuals are just trying to get US dollar exposure. So I think the dollar as a savings technology actually is a use case here yeah. uh, where we'll start to see, and how that gets regulated, I'd imagine that we'll start to see some serious clampdowns at the on-ramps in some of these countries. Yeah. I, we we launched yesterday with Rithio in Argentina and Brazil, like they have a, a USDC product. You can go from local currency into it. You can generate a 6% yield. Um, it's a seamless experience. Uh, you can convert into Mercado Pagos, which is the Amazon of Latin America. So if you need to buy goods, you can do that too. And like, that's pretty attractive, <laughs> you know? Super attractive. Uh, I, I guess the question is, does it collaborate or does it compete with the local uh, fiat currencies in these areas? And I think that's where the, the tension will arise. But, um, you know, part of me really thinks that the genie is out of the bottle here in the sense that there will be ways to get exposure to this, whether it's through a regulated on-ramp or whether it's through a, you know, meet someone on the street and do a local Bitcoin style transaction, but you're getting access to dollars and people will seek out whatever kind of savings technology is, is best. And I, I do think that this fits into that category of being a, a great savings technology, uh, maybe to complement things like Bitcoin, which are obviously much more volatile. Yeah, we, I mean, same, same feelings here. Uh, we, we feel that it's going to be very disruptive. Um, the states probably have a certain ability to fight back and try and discourage their citizens from using crypto dollars, but there have been plenty of cases historically where they've capitulated when their populace has said, we don't trust your monetary uh, direction and uh, we're going to spontaneously opt for an alternative. And uh, that's always been the dollar. Uh, you've had top-down dollarization, bottom-up dollarization. Ecuador in the early 2000s was a bottom-up, bottom-up dollarized situation. Um, what has impaired or inhibited other dollarization movements, Zimbabwe is a great example. Argentina is another example is that you had to hold physical dollars in right. Venezuela as well. Actually, this is a massive hindrance to the dollarization in Venezuela right now. There's not enough small bills. So yeah. you have big bills circulating. It's right. hard to get smaller change. Right. So it's just, it's more challenging. In Zimbabwe, you know, the state was able to kind of arrest the dollarization to a certain extent uh, because there was just a shortage of physical dollars. It's hard yeah. to get them in. They didn't have a lot of kind of trade relationships with the U.S. Um, that's why dollarization has been easier in Latin America. But uh, if you do it in a virtual way, it solves a lot of those problems. You don't have those issues with denomination. You don't have the issue with dollars being captured by large financial institutions necessarily. Like in Argentina, you had the Corralito. Those were dollars and bank accounts that were suddenly, you know, withdrawals were ceased overnight. And then the peso depreciated against the dollar. Those dollars that people thought that they had access to got trapped. Right. Now, if it's a bearer style asset, now you don't have to rely on a bank to hold it. It's your own property effectively the government doesn't have these high leverage tools to inhibit that dollarization. So it's a much more organic, much more distributed phenomenon. So it seems really different. And it seems like the dollarization events here will, will be more successful. Mm -hmm. uh, so that that's absolutely our view. Um, and it'd be we, hard to forecast exactly the trajectory there. You can probably name some candidate states where there's a high level of crypto penetration, yeah. a high level of mobile, penetration, good internet, tech savvy individuals, high inflation rates, 
Right. Those would be the candidate places you'd say, wow, within the next five, 10 years, I expect something to happen here. Yeah. Yes, it raises, it raises um, larger questions, um, you know, you know, central, central banks on a global scale, you know, or what I would call global scale central banks, called G20, G10, whatever, um, you know, um, you know, d does this ultimately lead to, it, it, as this unfolds, does it lead to the potential for a more coordinated approach to synthetic global digital currencies um, that, uh, that, you know, uh, can exist in new units of account that are, that are actually not just dollars, but that are synthetic um, and does, does this sort of, is this a forcing function on a road towards that? Um, and, and maybe Bitcoin's even part of that uh, because it's, it's a, a really attractive non-sovereign store of value, just like all fiat used to have a peg to gold. Like does a synthetic fiat currency basket with a peg to Bitcoin become a, a future, the, the bank or, uh, uh, you know, does, does something like that emerge out of this, this sort of, uh, uh, little mosaic we have. Well, that's where you start to get really disruptive um, to the United States. I mean, that's where I think it, that discussion gets really interesting. I thought it was interesting that Mark Carney's sort of parting thoughts at Jackson Hole a year or two ago really had to do with that idea of creating this um, core like instrument. Um, you know, that in that world, I think that the U.S.'s ability to uh, be that apex predator of money really is, is compromised. But uh, certainly the the incentives to have something like that if you're one of those uh, G10 countries uh, certainly exists. I mean, I would say the, 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 you know, issuing the dollar was the, you know, the quote unquote exorbitant privilege for a while, but it's probably worked against most Americans for the last 20, 30 years. Um, the dollar trades at a structural premium because it's the, the world's reserve currency. Yeah. And uh, that's part of the, that's, Part of the reason the manufacturing has been offshore, our exports are less competitive. So a, a lot of Americans don't know this, but I think they would massively benefit from a weaker dollar mm -hmm. and uh, something like a bank war uh, to solve effectively the Triven dilemma. Yes. So yeah. the, it, it's kind of a weird situation where lots of policymakers want the world to be united on a single ledger that basically settles back to the dollar through New York, through the correspondent yeah, banking right. system, because they get all this really granular power projection ability. Yeah, absolutely. But yeah. at the same, same time, you know, the American middle class gets kind of shredded by the fact that our, our dollar is so strong. Mm -hmm. uh, so if, you know, I, I would maybe wouldn't even necessarily object to a weaker dollar. I think yeah. it would be kind of in line with, with welfare maximization. But I, I think like th there's uh, there's like this forcing function bottom up phenomenon that could be this catalyst uh, that just forces these big, big players to kind of get together and think through how to solve for this. That's one dimension, right? Th th there's, um, you know, I, I think, um, coming back to the very start and part of your thesis, which is, you know, these crypto dollars uh, or, or let's just say high quality digital bearer fiat instruments or, or synthetic fiat instruments, whatever, you know, whatever these end up being, right? That they very powerfully enable commerce interactions to take place. They theoretically bring 
the world economic system makes it more integrated, enables market participants, individuals, creators, laborers, firms, et cetera, to sort of have a different level of commerce taking place. And, and that, you know, it may be that, you know, just, you know, the, the, the leaps forward that emerged from that over 10 years that, that also, also become forcing functions to trying to say, hey, why don't we just get to a different unit of account here? Um, and, you know, if you read Ray Dalio's recent history book, books, whatever you want to call it, um, in these super cycles and these, in these monetary regime super cycles and, you know, looking at the, the, the United States, looking at China, the inevitability of China being the dominant uh, economy in the world in the next, you know, five years seems like largest, uh, at least. Um, and the fact that more trade will be denominated in digital yuan. Um, you know, th those, those issues um, might come more to the forefront in five years. Yeah, I, I, it, but the thing is to replace a global reserve currency, you need an incredibly overwhelming new superpower to underwrite that. It doesn't seem clear that China could do that today. Um, there hasn't been a global realignment as of yet. Often it follows some sort of political turmoil, some sort of transition you know, World War One was really the event which, you know, took the pound sterling off and and installed the dollar. Uh, I don't see. I mean, that hasn't happened yet. Maybe something will happen. Who knows? Um, but uh, I if it doesn't seem to me, it's not clear that there's an alternative to the dollar right now. I know everyone likes to predict the the, the fall of the dollar as the reserve currency. Maybe the future is just uh, a number of interlocking. Uh, currencies that trade can can settle in, um, yeah. and some of them politically neutral currencies like Bitcoin. Yeah, yeah. yeah it would seem to me that uh, some sort of a blended currency um, like a Bancor would be more palatable. I think right. the other interesting thing there is just if you think about the ability for the U.S. government to enforce sanctions on a, a huge scale and just large swaths of the financial services infrastructure landscape has really become an enforcement arm of the US government in, in a lot of different ways. And what moving off of a dollar standard would do to that ability to really have visibility into those type of transactions. I think that's a big open question that there'll be a lot of pushback if we move towards something that is not dollar denominated. Yeah, there's lots of questions, lots to unpack. Um, we could go on and on, you know, on, on all this. Um, well, this, is, this, has been, uh, this has been an awesome um, conversation and would love to continue another time as well. Um, uh, any, any closing thoughts? One of the things I, I always like to ask people is, you know, where do you see this in two to three years? Where do you see this in five to 10 years? Maybe from each of you guys. To me, the, I guess the closing thought would be that if you look at everything that we're talking about and how big the three of us think that this is going to be, there are entire categories of companies that don't exist yet to service some of these needs. There are just enormous opportunities here to start businesses. Um, and so that's, a, that's really what we're, I'm probably the most excited about is just some of these uh, capital markets businesses, this infrastructure around how to build applications on top of these things, lending and borrowing and uh, payments. So uh, I think it's just a really exciting time to spend some time to uh, get educated about it and, and see where those opportunities are. Thank you, Matt. Yeah, my, my parting thought is this. So the, the kind of current financial system as it exists today is very uneven, uh, not just within the US, uh, but internationally, 
um, depending on which state you reside in, your kind of access to power, you have very variable access to kind of Western financial rails. And in particular, the US banking system was really the gold standard. And the, it's a multi-tiered model. And the further, the, the larger number of hops you are away from New York, basically the more expensive it gets. And that's why you have these really inefficient, expensive remittance channels. So in the near term, I see crypto dollars flattening that topology. And that's already happening. So mm -hmm. it's only one hop to get into that global clearinghouse, which is on public blockchains, as opposed to five hops. So regardless of the inefficiencies or the high fees or the costs of using a system like that, it's already 100x better. Yeah. Because it's a single hop, you get to the global clearinghouse of value, you're there. Um, so that is a near-term phenomenon, which is not going away. I think it's going to make cross-border commerce much easier, mm -hmm. B2B settlement. It's going to open up some of these labor markets, which weren't really integrated. Uh, I think maybe it'll be, who knows, maybe it'll be bad for the wages of, of white-collar Americans because it's much easier to do business with people abroad and hire abroad. Yeah. Um, it may not be net good for Americans, but it'd probably be net good in terms of creating wealth globally. So that's kind of the near term. Longer term, I think we expect and believe that most uh, you know, foreign exchange clearance will start to happen on public blockchains. Mm -hmm. And uh, right now we're talking about 20 billion free float. Um, that, that number could be 100 billion by the end of next year easily. Right. The, the only constraints there are kind of balance sheets of the banks backing them. Yeah, yeah. Uh, if you That's hybridize it with a CBDC and you combine it with access to base money, then there's no constraint whatsoever. Right. Uh, so that number is going to grow by at least an order of magnitude, in my opinion, probably more. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, you look at the pace of growth and this is still such a small industry, mm -hmm. um, 20 billion. Uh, it seems big, but it, I think it's pretty small yeah, in the grand scheme. Completely agree. Uh, and I, I've been more frequently saying, you know, I, I, can, I can see a world where there's a trillion plus. Um, denominated in in these types of uh, digital crypto dollars <laughs> um, easily yeah there's, there's no constraints on the ledger the ledger doesn't really have any constraints it scales with value yeah absolutely um well awesome this has been an awesome conversation you guys um deeply appreciate you coming on and uh we'll look forward to chatting again really soon thanks jeremy thanks for having thanks, us thanks jeremy thank you absolutely so uh Fascinating conversation um, with some very, very bright minds uh, in the space, pursuing and thinking about all of these themes that, that we're very much enthusiastically working on uh, together. Um, next week, we're working on a very cool episode. We'll have more to say about it next week. Um, and until next time, stay well, stay safe, and stay informed. Thank you. Thank you.